Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Romans chapter 10. If you haven't opened your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. Romans chapter 10. We are in part five of this current uh, series called That's Just Great. Today we talk about our great commitment. Romans chapter 10. Hey, you know, maybe you remember the old story about a soldier in basic training. He was assigned KP duty, given the task of sorting potatoes. And there's a mountain of them. And so the mess sergeant told him to put all the bad potatoes in one container, put all the good potatoes in another container, and uh, would sort them out that way. Well, the sergeant comes back after about two hours, and he sees the soldier just standing there staring at a single potato. And both of the containers are completely empty. The sergeant says, what's the matter? Don't you like this job? The soldier said, it's not the work. It's the decisions that are killing me. (laughs) Some decisions are agonizing to make. Others, not so much. I mean, uh, what are some decisions you've enjoyed making? Perhaps, uh, you know, which item to choose off the menu at a really swanky restaurant? Or uh, which color your new car is going to be? Which ride to go on first at Disney World? Where to go for vacation? When to go on that cruise? How long to sleep in on Saturday? Which pair of new shoes to wear to church on Sunday morning? Life's full of decisions lot of decisions. In fact, Columbia researcher Sheena Iyengar, she estimates that we make about 70 decisions every day. Now you do the math, through the course of the year, that's about 25,500 decisions. Now, if you spread that out over, over a lifespan of, say, 80 years, that's 2,040,000 decisions that we make. Now, some decisions are easy. Yes, I'll marry you. You know, some decisions don't have, you know, great consequences. Do I choose the chicken salad or the tuna salad? Some decisions bring a lot of stress. Do I take the better job, even though the move means that I'm going to have to uproot my family? Of course, the biggest decisions are life-changing. Folks, the greatest decision we will ever make centers around what we are going to do with Jesus Christ. See, knowing about Jesus, not enough. Knowing Jesus, that's what it's all about. Our need for salvation is answered in Jesus. But we've got to decide whether or not we're going to commit to that truth and trust him or not. It is simply the choice of a lifetime. Now, in his letter to the uh, Roman believers, Paul emphasized the critical importance of this commitment. In fact, the big idea behind today's study is very simply this. To be saved, I must trust in Christ. 
Now, just to give you some context for our passage today, Paul had already discussed the, the universality of human sin and salvation through Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, we saw that in our studies the last two weeks in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5. But then in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul expressed his concern about the situation of unbelieving Jews. Of course, most of the readers of the Bible today are not Jewish, at least the readers of the New Testament. But Paul's emphasis on the need to make a decision about Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, that is still something that is very relevant to all people in all places at all times. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to discuss three core truths about salvation. But before we do that, we've got to make sure we're all on the same page. So uh, let's make sure we're, we know what we're talking about. All right, so what is salvation? How do we define it? Well, in spiritual and theological terms, salvation is very simply this. It is deliverance from the power and the effects of sin. Uh, salvation is deliverance from the power and the effects of sin. You see, we Christians, we're saved from something. That, of course, is the penalty of sin, which is an eternity of utter anguish and despair apart from God. But you see, we're also saved to something. Abundant life here on earth, eternal life here in heaven. All right, so here's the first core truth I want to give you this morning about salvation. Number one is this. Salvation is given, not earned by works. Look at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. All right, now before we go any further in the study, we've got to establish exactly who the people are. All right, the brothers and sisters are. Who the, the them and the they are of this passage. Now, the brothers and sisters, that's pretty obvious. That's the Christians in uh, Rome that Paul's writing to. But then in, in verses 1 through 3, the them and the they he's referring to were the Jewish people in Paul's day who had failed to recognize Jesus as the Savior, their promised Messiah. And in describing these people, Paul refers to two types of righteousness, okay? One false, one true. The first one I would describe like this. I would call it God-given righteousness. See, at the heart of the Jews' rejection of Jesus was their, their misunderstanding of this concept of righteousness. And in verse 3, Paul distinguishes between those who have submitted to God's righteousness and those who have attempted to establish their own righteousness. So Paul meant that God is the source of righteousness, but the only way that we can receive that righteousness, well, it comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said back in chapter 9, verse 30, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. So there's God-given righteousness, but we also see a second kind. I would describe that as self-driven 
righteousness. See, unfortunately, the Jews tried to establish their own righteousness. They mistakenly thought that they could be rightly related to God through their works. Also in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, Paul wrote that Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works, Paul said. Now here's the thing. Both Jews and Gentiles are saved the exact same way. God has not invented two different plans of salvation. We are all saved by faith, not by works. Faith in whom? Well, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostle Peter declared about Jesus that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So the only way for someone to be saved was and is through a faith response to God's offer of salvation through the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And so Paul's concern here for his fellow Jews, it, it prompted his clarification of what the Jews misunderstood about God's plan of salvation. It was through God-given righteousness by faith not the self-driven righteousness of works. Okay, but how is that situation really relevant to us today? Well, let me first say this. Verse 2 says they have zeal for God, meaning they, they have enthusiasm, excitement for God, but not according to knowledge, Paul says. So where, let me just ask you, where in our culture then do we see people having zeal without knowledge. How about that Monday morning quarterback, the guy who has never actually played a sport, but can actually pinpoint the exact reason why the Cowboys lost over the weekend? Yeah, gee, thanks for your assessment, Professor. I'm glad you got it all worked out. I'm sure Jerry Jones has a job for you. You know, or what about people claiming to have a great time at a party, but are actually harming themselves by their actions? Dude, you remember that time at Ryerson's party? We got so wasted and hurled all night. Yeah, bro, good times. Zeal without knowledge. The protester at a political rally who says that he's anti-fascism, and yet he has no clue that his tactics are actually very fascist in nature. Can you say Antifa? Zeal, without knowledge. See, there's a lot of people in our world today who have zeal for reaching God without the necessary knowledge. Now, Paul's saying that the Jews in his day didn't understand the true nature of how to be saved. But you see, the Jews aren't alone in their ignorance, in their zeal without knowledge. In fact, at the core of most religions is the belief that you know, people are basically good, and yes, we can work our way to God. But you know, those attempts to get to God by religious works can actually be a stumbling block, you know, an actual hindrance to knowing God. So those works are not meant to be a means to an end. Our works are the fruit of true salvation, not the cause of our salvation. 
Think of it this way. Every holiday season, we tell children, well, if you're good this year, Santa's going to bring you something on Christmas Day. Which, you know, that thinking gives rise to song lyrics like, oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. And boy, is he honked off. Okay, so that's, that's, that's a works-based mentality, right? It suggests, oh, if I can just be good enough, somehow I can earn Santa's gift. But you see, God's grace means I receive his gift based on the character of the giver, not the merits of the receiver. And the Jews had it backward. Now, as we read this, you know, we're, we're quick to kind of wag a finger at them. But, you know, even in the church today, there's a lot of people who fill their lives with all sorts of religious activities and good morals, thinking that these, things, these things are somehow going to give them a connection to God. Let me tell you, just being a religious person is not good enough. Joining a church, not good enough. Being a Baptist is not good enough. Showing up for your Sunday school class is not enough. Faithful attendance of worship services, even on holiday weekends, is not enough. Choosing to commit a tithe to the ministry of the church is not enough. Serving on a committee, not enough. Zeal alone is not enough. You've got to have that intimate knowledge that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus. And that must be guided by Scripture and by His Holy Spirit. So your enthusiasm, your, uh, your busyness about religious things, it might not have anything to do with the specific call that God has placed on your life. Still, there's a lot of people today who think that they can somehow earn their way into God's good favor. They just don't grasp the truth that salvation is based solely on Jesus' atoning death for us, for our sins. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we are saved by grace through faith. This is not from ourselves. It is God's gift. Now here in verse 3, Paul says, they attempted to establish their own righteousness. Well, by establishing my own standard of righteousness, I'm always going to fail. I'm always going to be inadequate. My own standard will be incomplete. It's always far below God's standard. My standard really doesn't matter. Only God's standard of righteousness really counts. And in reality, I'm often going to fail to meet even my own standard of righteousness anyway. You see, folks, we don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on His. He receives us on His terms. All right, so here in verses 1 through 3, we saw that salvation is given, not earned by works. But now in verses 8 through 10, I want you to notice a second thing. Salvation is given through confession and belief. Look at the end of verse 8. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, 
and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. So, there's two components of salvation that Paul gives us in these verses. Confess and believe. But what do these words, believe and confess, really teach us about our salvation? Well, there's two facets to the way that we respond to God's call. Two, two sides of the same spiritual coin. And that dual response actually begins with what, what I would call an inward commitment. There is an inward heart and mind commitment to the truth of Christ's work of redemption for you personally. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. So you must believe that God raised him from the dead. You know, to believe that Jesus was a real person who lived in the first century, man, that's never going to be enough. Even to believe in the death of Jesus, that doesn't go far enough. Folks, the resurrection of Jesus, that's the linchpin of the Christian faith. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. He restates that in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You see, without the resurrection, Jesus would have just been a really, really good man who died a very tragic death. But you see, the fact that separates Jesus from all other religious leaders is that Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he is alive today. I heard a couple of amens. This would be a really good point for the rest of you to amen, because he is alive today. Right on. Love that. Think about it. Muhammad, he was not raised on the third day. Buddha, he didn't rise from the grave. God approved of Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead because he is the one and only Lord. Now, why would Paul specifically mention the need for us to believe in Jesus by using the heart? I mean, isn't it enough to just hold those thoughts in our minds? Well, understand this. Faith is more than just intellectual acceptance of some facts about Jesus. In fact, the Greek verb that Paul uses here, it means to be convinced that something is true and therefore worthy of trust. And while that Greek verb that's rendered as believe in, in the English, while it does include an intellectual component, Paul was referring to aspects of trust and commitment too. Now, to the Jews of Paul's day, the heart wasn't merely a, a muscle that, that pumps blood. In fact, the word he chooses there, cardia, it really means the center and source of the whole inner life with its mind and its will and, and emotions. In other words, the heart was their operational center of a person's identity and decision-making. So believing with all of your heart, it really means believing with all of your being, all of your life. 
In fact, the, the origin of our English word believe, it's an old English term, by live. I live by what I believe. That's faith. There was an African, uh, an American missionary in Africa. He wanted to translate the English word faith into a local dialect, and he could not find its equivalent. So he went to an old sage who himself was actually a fine Christian for help in rendering the needed word into understandable language. So the guru studied it. Finally, he said, uh, does it not mean to hear with the heart? Yeah, yeah, faith, faith is, is hearing with the heart and trusting with your life. So there's an inward commitment that we see here in the scripture. We believe with our hearts, but there's also, get this, an outward pronouncement. There's an outward declaration. And there's life choices that, that dem demonstrate that we've chosen to believe. Paul says in verse 9, if you will confess with your mouth. Now that Greek word for con confess, it, it literally means to speak the same thing. So it means to be uh, of one mind on a matter. It means to agree with. But agree with what? What are we confessing? Simple that Jesus is Lord. Now, Lord, it's, it's often a supercharged word in the scriptures because it often carries two meanings. That's especially true here. We see one meaning, which is master. I mean, in the New Testament, the word Lord comes from the Greek word kurios, which carries with it a, a, a basic meaning of someone who's in a position of authority. So think master, boss, owner. In other words, Jesus is in charge. Now, some of you who, like me, you know, may have a mind that's basically a repository for worthless trivia. You might recall back in the late 80s, there was a sitcom, very popular, called, called Charles in Charge. But a college student in New Jersey, he needed a place to live. And so he takes up residence with an affluent family who provide free room and board for him in exchange for his services as a caretaker for their kids. Funny show. Ran for five seasons. But you see, for you and I, there is a real life scenario where Jesus, where his Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts and minds, serving as our caretaker. But you see, having Jesus take up residence in your life, it means he's the one in charge, y'all. Okay? Not just for a few seasons of your life, but for all time, for always. And so Paul's use of the word Lord, it means that Jesus is the boss. But his use of Lord has another meaning. You see, in this context, Paul is using kurios to say something that's even broader in scope than simply boss. Lord is also used here as a designation for God. It signifies Jesus' deity, his sovereign power, his authority. Of course, we talked about that extensively back in part one of this sermon series when we explored the scriptures that identified Jesus as creator God. Now, if you missed that one, go check it out on my YouTube channel. Catch up on that one. 
So what are the implications then of confessing Jesus as Lord? Well, two things. We're admitting Jesus is boss. Okay, he's the master. Jesus is God. When we confess him, we are agreeing with God that Jesus is our sovereign Lord with authority over everything, including our lives. So we live in submission to Jesus' rule. All right, so if I want to be saved, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Easy peasy, right? Not so fast, my friends. Yes, salvation, in a sense, is both very easy and difficult. It's easy because salvation is a gift. And the way to receive that gift is very simple. Faith. But in a very real sense, salvation can also be hard because your life now belongs to him. And let me tell you, following Jesus isn't always a cakewalk, y'all. It can be challenging. The Christian life is not for wimps. It's not for the faint of heart. And let me tell you, it's not some sort of social club that we participate in. It is for people who will willingly count the cost of following Jesus Christ, knowing full well that having him as the number one priority in your life is not going to earn you a lot of friends. You're not going to win a lot of popularity contests. But according to Paul, Submitting to Christ's lordship is essential for salvation. When you confess Christ as Lord, you're basically saying this. Jesus, you alone are sovereign. You alone have all power and control. You alone are my master. I am your servant. You're the boss. Therefore, I surrender to you. My life is no longer mine. It's yours. Because following Jesus Christ is our life's greatest commitment. All right, so in verses 1 through 3, we saw that salvation is given, not earned by works. Verses 8 through 10, we discovered that salvation is given through confession and belief. Now in verses 11 through 13, we're going to get a clear picture of who can benefit from God's gift of salvation. As we see number 3, salvation is available to all who believe. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so what promise is given to anyone who puts his or her faith in Christ? What does Paul mean exactly by that? It's pretty simple. That we won't be condemned when we stand before God at the judgment. Because we've been justified. Now, two main thoughts really stand out in these verses. And they're very simple, yet they're very life-impacting. And the first is that all who call on him are blessed. Now, what distinctions did Paul note here in verse 12 in the way that Jews and Gentiles obtain their salvation? Uh, none. No distinction. No difference. The same Lord, Jesus, is Lord of all. The same Lord, Jesus, richly blesses all who call on him. 
And those blessings are open to Jew and Gentile alike. And, and whatever difference might exist between those two people groups in some respects, there's no difference when it comes to our need for Jesus Christ and the availability of his salvation. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction, the blessings are bestowed on all without partiality. But what blessings? Well, I think it's true that God does bless different Christians in different ways. But there are ways that we are all commonly blessed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says that God has blessed believers with every spiritual blessing. Of course, in the verses that follow, he kind of fleshes that out. He goes on to explain that his blessing includes us being chosen by God to be his treasured possession and the glorious grace he poured out that purchased our freedom, the redemption we have through Christ's blood, and the truth that we have all obtained a heavenly inheritance. So all who call on him are blessed. But get this. All who call on him are saved. Yes, we have obtained a, a heavenly inheritance, but how does that inheritance come to us? Well, through belief and confession. But how are those activated? Verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that Greek verb there for calls, it's in the subjunctive mood. I can already sense your eyeballs rolling into the back of your heads. What's with all the Greek? Would you stop with all the Greek already? What does all this Greek grammatical gobbledygook mean? Let me tell you. The subjunctive mood is the mood of potential. The mood of possibility. If I were a rich man. Well, if I were a rich man, then what? By the way, if you didn't get that reference to Fiddler on the Roof, go home, watch, stream that. I'm sure Netflix or Prime, they've got it. If I were a rich man, if only I told her that I loved her before she left. So oftentimes with the sub subjunctive mood, since it's the mood of possibility or potential, there's a, a conditional statement involved. If this, then this. If these circumstances are so, then this will be the result. If then, if you call upon the name of the Lord, then you will be saved. I realize I sound a lot like William Shatner when I talk like that. If then you... Sorry, I digress. Um, maybe it's the early onset of Tourette syndrome or something. <laughs> if you call upon his name, you will be saved. But it begins with believing first in the finished work that Jesus Christ did on the cross and confessing him as Lord. God, I know that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness and salvation. I believe in what Jesus did for me on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead to prove his love. And so I choose to confess him as Savior and Lord. I call upon you. Please, save me, God. Which really brings us full circle to the big idea. To be saved, I must trust 
in Christ. And that trust really, it involves the whole person. Faith in Jesus, it's certainly more than just intellectual agreement to some facts about him. It's not just here. Faith also includes our emotions, our, our will. In other words, it's us trusting him with our whole being, with our very soul, our mind, our will, our emotions. And to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, it means to trust him, not just for a few seasons, for a short time, but over the course of a lifetime. And to center our lives and all of our decisions on him. He is number one. He is the boss. Jesus is in charge. Now, in light of that, how do we respond? What are we supposed to do with this? How do we put it to work in the Christian life? What are some action steps that we can take this week in light of the truth that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. Let me give you three starters, okay? The first one is exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Elevate him to the top priority in your life. And listen, if you've never trusted in Jesus, you never believed in him, confessed him as Lord, receive him now as your Savior and Lord. Trust him for forgiveness of your sin. Turn to him for new life. And trust in his leadership by making him the boss and exalt him. In other words, make a big deal about Jesus every day. So exalt Christ. Here's the second one. Examine your life. If you've already trusted Christ, then take some time this week to really assess your relationship with him. Do some self-reflection. Are you growing closer to him? Are you studying his word? Are you sharing the truth of the gospel with others? What areas of your life have you not fully yielded to the lordship of Jesus? Examine your life and then do this. Embark on a mission. Start something new. Start a new work for the Lord. Pray about that. He, he may reveal all sorts of possibilities to you. I mean, it might be something as simple as helping to launch a new Bible study here in the church or in your neighborhood or in the community with the purpose of reaching those who need to hear the truth about Jesus. Now, maybe you're here today in the room or you're watching online or on TV and you need to embrace the truth about Jesus. <laughs> well, here it is. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what did Jesus say? What did he mean when he said, no one comes to the Father? He meant no one. No, wait a second, Eric. All, aren't all the other world religions equally valid paths to God? Well, there's people that would have you believe that. But if that were true, if all the other religions of the world had paths that were equally valid to get to God the Father, do you know what that makes Jesus? At the, at the best, it makes him mistaken. At the worst, it makes him a liar. In which case, our faith is misplaced. Why bother? But you know, Jesus did something to prove that what he said was true. 
Yes, he died on a cross for our sins, but he rose again on the third day to prove that everything that he did and said was legit. He really is the only way to God the Father. And choosing to trust him is something that is going to change your life so dramatically. Nicodemus, the religious leader, came to Jesus at night. You see their conversation in John chapter 3. In verse 3, Jesus told him, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, when you choose to give your heart and life to Christ and make him Savior and Lord, he gives you second birth, a spiritual rebirth. And if you've never made that choice, why not let him transform you into something beautiful today? Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.